Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Design Exec Club Spotlight. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me is Turi McKinley. Hi, Turi. Hello, folks. Hi, Mark. Now, Turi, you're coming in from the black background of New York uh, today. I'm in the what I'm referring to as the International Design Station. I'm spinning around the world, but uh, I'm not actually on planet Earth, I don't think. Locked into Australia. I haven't been able to leave for 18 months, which is in some ways maddening, in other ways liberating. You know, my it used to be I'd do two cities a week when I was on tour. Now I can go do two cities a day. Or sometimes I just pause. Um, Tori, we're going to go have a bit of a chat about how a better future, design innovation, where they intersect, and how do we make sure that we're creating a strong economy with a sustainable environment and social equity. But viewers, in the, in the pre-conversation, Terry, you kind of put a spanner in the gearbox, which I loved. It, it was a fantastic. Help me out with, the, with this quote from the founder of Frog. Sure. So you, we, were, we were just talking and I was saying that I think one of the, in this space, one of the ideas or quotes that I love from Frog's founder, Hartman, is design cannot change the world. Designers can change the world. So when you think about that, design is, on so many levels, it's an important thought. On the one hand, design as an abstract can be good or bad. It's, it's like any tool in your box. Hmm. But it's the humans, the designers, it's those of us and how we use the tools with which we are presented that make impact. So throughout this conversation, I'll say design at various points, but I'm really thinking about designers and those of us on the call who are designers and how can we show up in different ways? How can we ask different questions? Yeah. Uh, how do we have an impact? And so when I began this journey a short 15 years ago, it was interesting that that observation about that design could solve things was omnipresent. It hadn't been actually kicked around and tested as much. Now, that would seem, I mean, the reason why we changed the name of the organisation to Driven by Design was it appeared that design was left to designers, that there wasn't, a design didn't have universal franchise for all executives in all parts of business and our community to say, we can use design methods and principles to solve human problems. And so that's been great to go see that uplift that's taken place. But we know that there's good design. We also know there's some really bad design. And I suppose that comes down to design is really useful at actually creating an outcome for a human need. It could be that the outcome that was designed might have been flawed or it may not have been in the best interest of the human. I think um, Jeannie Gang did a fantastic exploration around people who are incarcerated in jails and prisons and the design that went in to dehumanise the process. And it was purposeful design. Like this was, we know this psychological point, we will now deny the human any form of physical contact so that we're actually being... Um, uh, say, we're impacting them with the maximum punishment they can have. So that's bad design. We know that there's the Digger Am School of good design. Well, let me ask, Mark, is that actually, I mean, you're, what you're getting into is what is the meaning of good and bad, right? Yeah. Because we measure good by did it achieve the goal that was sought? 
if the goal that was sought was to dehumanize prisoners and punish them more, and the actions or the system that was put together effectively did that, you could say that's good. But if we start as designers asking ourselves, uh, not just did I achieve my client's goal or my boss's goal or the goal I was given, but did I do that in a way that was good for people and planet? That gives us a very different set of, as designers, ways of saying what is good design. Yeah. I, 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 I think that question of, is it our responsibility? Is it our ability? Is it our role to say there's the project goal or there's the ask and how we solve that needs to involve people and planet. Yeah, and 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 that and that's fantastic. That that you you nailed exactly where the territory I was going into, which was goodness or badness. I I had the unfortunate or sorry, I had the very fortunate opportunity to have lunch with the uh, Nobel laureate uh, Dr. Peter Doherty, who's uh, the virologist who's come up with lots of things around COVID. And I, it was an accidental lunch. And I was sitting down, I just got introduced to a guy named Peter. And I said, what are you working on? He said, a book on pandemics. And we got talking and I said to him after about 10 minutes, I said, so what's a good pandemic and what's a bad pandemic? I said, is a good pandemic one that kills the maximum number of people in the shortest period of time? Or is that a bad pandemic? And he looked at me and he said, I've worked around science and pandemics all my life and i've never considered the that aspect of it and and so so you get the engineering function which is is it productive in its own existence or is it productive in humanity's existence so i think they're very interesting considerations that you used a beautiful term which was the ask and that's exactly what clients do, isn't it? They come in, they ask for things, and they say, we'd like this. But the ask and the actual design project are often quite different. There's a journey there, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think within the work, there's many different roles in which we will all find ourselves. But the work that we do, um, I think we believe that... Um, it's often our responsibility to challenge the ask. And yeah. that can be, it, it doesn't have to deal with people and planet, but it's our responsibility to challenge the ask and dig into is the question that is being posed to us as the reason we need design or the reason we need to solve something. Is that the right or the best question to ask to really get at the underlying pursuit or need? Um, so yes, challenging the ask is, I think, super important. And it's um, one of the, as people mature in the design space, it's one of the skills that you begin to see emerge when somebody's got enough confidence in their craft that they know they can kind of solve any challenge. They then have the, tend to have the ability to say, okay, now, I've got all the tools, I've got the craft, but am I asking the right question? And to ask that right question, you need to understand a good deal of context. So um, 
in the last several years, a lot of the work that we've been doing has been in, in my group within Frog has been focused on how do we build enterprise design teams. And by enterprise design teams, what I'm really saying is a design team that's able to have an influential seat at the table and be guiding decisions rather than just receiving tactical asks and delivering. Mm -hmm. As we think of the skills that designers need today, we've kind of built a bit of a model for thinking about how that um, plays out for designers. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, we feel like designers need that confidence, that ability to engage with, you know, whoever's asking them for something with confidence in their ability to solve it and the design process. But ultimately to really be challenging the ask and going deeper than just delivering in a tactical sense, they also need what we think of as influence, the ability to gain the trust of whoever's asking and influence through connection and understanding and creating shared goals. So that's thinking about the context um, of the business, the context of the market, the user, ideally also people and planet, and then beginning to be able to have conversations that get people to go through a thinking process that opens up their mind from the specific ask they had and ask them to consider the wider context. Um, and once we feel, we feel like once designers are able to do those things, what we tend to see is they begin to influence the decisions. And I think when we think of um, how we integrate questions of equity, of inclusion, of people and planet into the solutions that we come up with, we very often need to have the ability to reframe the ask. And so our teams, our in ourselves, need that ability to be more than craftspeople, but to be able to influence and advocate for um, different types of questions. You so beautifully structured that process there. And talking about the design craft from a tactical response mm -hmm. rather than a strategic response. After the ask has occurred, there's a loading up stage so that you've actually got the knowledge and the wisdom of the project and you need to have knowledge, you need to understand the values of the project, you also need to understand the consideration. And, and what I love when, when I used to be doing Bruce myself, would be when you went into the corporate documentation, you found out that there was a corporate social responsibility statement and it gave the values and the principles of the organisation, even if the executive that was briefing you didn't actually brief you those principles. So it was the type of thing you could then go back to modify that ask and say, here's what we're going to do, which has alignment. And all of a sudden, that idea of having influence is there because You've now saved their bacon, as we'd say in Australia. Do you, you say that in America? Save your bacon? Okay. Um, I, there must be a vegan version of it, yeah? A little more crass, actually. <laughs> okay. So, so you wind up with the influence there. And 
We last had a one-on-one -on -one conversation when we went and did the design of the boardroom series, which I think was like 2019, which feels so long ago. And the reason that I went and did that series about design of the boardroom was because it wasn't a conversation that had been socialised. And in that conversation, you brought up about the, the experiences that you'd had as an early stage designer and for want of a better um, analogy, it was like you were putting the chrome on the end of a flawed project, trying to lipstick on a pig. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I've got a lot of beef. I oh, know I've got uh, pork and pig and bacon. Okay, but we're putting lipstick on a pig. And rather than getting design in at the essence of the ask, the unmet human need, the objectives of the organisation and how do we go through the most proven, effective, reliable methodology to get to that outcome. And I'm not sure that we've got as much advocacy as, need, as is needed because for the last 30 years, design has been talking about beauty and elegance and, and wow. They haven't been talking about strategic and the efficiency that comes and the leverage that comes from design. And that to me fascinates that there's the shiny thing is so much more enticing to go talk about rather than the effective thing. Is there a tide changing there? Well, if I look at the alum, so I've been at Frog for a very long time, like 15 years. If I look at where our alumni have gone, many of our alumni have gone to very large companies and they are the folks who are saying, I've been given a great design team that is purely tactically focused. We are not having sufficient impact on what the company does. We need to move ourselves up the decision-making chain or in the front of the design process as you're talking, talking about to be able to really influence what are the, what are the, um, what are the asks that are being shaped and how do we make sure that those are the right ones to be designing towards. Um, so you're really seeing a lot of companies starting to have design moving up front. And that's why you see design ops and research ops and some of these um, disciplines that are beginning to grow that are really about how do you scale design effectively within large organizations. And the reason you need those operational processes is because those um, design leaders, those creative folks need to have scale behind them to be able to truly meet the kind of needs that they are shaping within the organization. But I will say, Mark, one thing I want to trace back to is the thing you mentioned about looking at the corporate social responsibility statement of your company or your client's company and asking how does this reflect on the ask that we've been given? How does this influence the, the solutions that we're going to be working towards? Um, if you've never done that as a designer before, it can feel like a really strange, stressful um, thing to do to say, hey, I went out to your website and I looked up your company mission and this part of your company mission seems important and relevant. But that is, as a leader, that is one of the 
opportunities that designers can begin to bring into how they problem solve. And while it's not every company, over the last three years, one thing we've been seeing globally is that many companies are starting to move from, yeah, 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 we've got that corporate social responsibility mission about how important people are and things like that. Um, and, but we are all aware that that's just kind of lip service. Mm -hmm. to we are starting to see companies from automakers to big consultancies to other types of companies begin to say actually the legacy that we leave to the to the next generation or to the planet is actually important enough that we are going to start actively asking about that yeah. so I am beginning to see it. There's still a lot of lip service out there, but there is greater awareness at leadership levels around the impact that we have on the world. And also to everybody listening to this podcast, regardless of your age, um, leaders are feeling that from their teams as well. When people start asking those questions about how do we show up differently? How do we act responsibly? Um, so I think things are moving. Look, I, I would have to agree. Uh, there's definitely movement there. And in any population, and I, I feel really intimidated now knowing that, you're, that you've got an anthropology background and I just used the word population. Um, so the, but in any population, you've got the most progressive, the least progressive and the middle. And I think what we saw was the corporate social responsibility was being with the most progressive. It's now gone into the middle and it's been there for a little while. And to me, design is only really effective in impact when it gets the back 10 or 20% and takes them into the future. Because, and, and I'll give you the reason for that. It, it, any, a squeeze box can only go through a certain range. If you stretch it too far, it makes no noise. If it's too compressed, it makes no noise. It's in the middle range that it actually performs. If you have the lead set go too far ahead, then you stretch one way. If you haven't brought the back 20% along, you're stretched too far. You need to get into that middle range. And I think one of the hardest things is working out not how to go get the early adopters but to get the never changes and give them something which actually is a, whether it's a, a trick that they don't realise that things are changing underneath them or whether it's a trick which is you've appealed to, you know, uh, an aspiration or a fear that they've got, but you need to help them to get into the future. Let me suggest something um, about that back end of the curve that you're talking about. Yep. Part of the reason design was able to go from the front end of the curve into the, the bell is because the unique benefit that designers bring to change is that we are focused on making something real in the world. So whether that is, um, we recently brought in a team from, uh, from IDEAN. They became part of FROG. And some of their team in London were thinking about this question of inclusion. 
So they developed cards for humanity, not cards against humanity, but cards for humanity. And um, they built a Figma plugin so that you can rapidly as a team bring in some great prompts to get a team to think about ideas of inclusion in your project. The tangibility of that and also just like the loveliness of the design makes it really easy for somebody further down that bell curve to try to bring those questions into a conversation. And I think when you look at what designers do, we help companies make things real that appeal to people so that you do get that, um, you're able to not only say this is important, but you're able to say it's important and it drove business success and it drove eyeballs and it drove whatever KPI is important to those folks you're trying to bring forward. So I think holistically when you're trying to drive change, not just speaking it theory, but making it real is necessary. And that's what design is so good at. I, I had the, the pleasure of creating a friendship with a gentleman who, became, who was my father's greatest nemesis when, when he was working. <clears throat> so my father was the secretary of the Waterside Workers Federation for a chapter of his life. So he was there representing the workers, but it was at a period where the idea of containers were coming in and there was labour replacement and it may not have been as progressive on the efficient innovation that was taking place. It was more about how do we protect these jobs? And at the same time, there was a mining company who was trying to say, well, we want to change the unionization on our, on our waterfronts. We want to make sure we can move our materials. So 30 years goes by, the gentleman who was the CEO of that company, I'm at his dinner table with his wife. We've become friends. I've shared with him who my father was. He's gobsmacked. It's like, oh, I've got the unionist in the household. But what, what did fascinate me was the imagination that both my father had and that this mining magnate had, their imagination for the future, a better future for, for, the, for generations to come was the same. It was the methodology that was different. Mm. It was... It was one was coming from the we need to give a hand up and the other one is, well, we, we, we give as, as little as we can, but enough that it's okay. And so, so there was this gap between, between the two and it, it actually was an ideological gap rather than a functional gap. But how interesting if you could have gotten your father and this man together to have a conversation about what, what's the long-term vision Divorced of the how to begin, what might they have together been able to create? That would have been amazing, right? Exactly, because here I had two people who were focused about betterment, but it was the implementation of betterment, the methodology that was sticking them, not the desired outcome. And I look at where we're up to with politicians now, and we seem to have lost in the Western world We've lost the idea of collaboration on different principles, methodology, but similar outcome designs. And the idea that we're going to fight against each other rather than collaborate and, and work together. And that's a very interesting thing. That, that I, like it was, it was one of those light bulb moments where I'm going, 
oh gosh, I'm seeing the two sides who want to argue, but actually what you want is the same. And I think that's how you take that front, very progressive, as you were saying at the, you know, one side of the bell curve and the other side. And when you can find the driving dynamic between them, which is an, generally imagination about their grandchildren's grandchildren. We go at that far, everyone says, yeah, I want to see that there's legacy. I want to see that everything's okay. If you focus on the immediate, it's somebody's going to lose a job, somebody's going to have more costs, somebody's going to have so this, this immediate thing that holds people back. And I think one of the challenges I've seen that design in executive level design, that enterprise-wide design has, is that it's yet to develop a robust methodology around modeling current state and benefit state of the design or the delayed state that you'll be in because you haven't made the change. It, it comes down to more, we're going to work out how to solve it rather than actually model it. And I think that's a very interesting thing because you leave a lot on the table if you haven't actually modelled what the current case is and what those future scenarios. Has that modelling side begun as you've done more enterprise enablement? Is that becoming more common practice that people are actually being able to go bring up something which looks like a very rational document of here's scenario A, B and C? I think what I'm seeing more at the moment is... Um, you know that decision-making is as much as it's informed by rationality and data and things like that, it is also, and perhaps arguably mostly emotionally driven. Mm. I am seeing um, a lot of the very senior decision-makers that, um, that we work with who are becoming motivated by bigger questions and wanting to, they're either saying, I want to leave a legacy for good. And they are beginning to have words to put around what good means um, you know, to our conversation earlier about what the word means, uh, or they are beginning to be kind of pressured by their children and the people around them asking different questions and wanting to leave a good result. So mm -hmm. I, I think there is, um, there is both how we make a rational argument for it's okay to make these kinds of changes uh, or how, we, how it's okay to redefine what good means or what success means in some other ways. Um, we have to be able to make a rational case but decisions are still very human. And we are starting to see, I think, enough of a sea change that um, as designers working at a senior executive level, sometimes part of our work is giving that executive the words, the confidence, and the kind of trust in them, confidence, but trust that they can take that emotional step to mm. a new direction. Yeah, and it's a, and so there's a continuum there that's moving and that as long as they don't think that they're too far out and too far exposed. You know, there's a, there's a zone which is I'm prepared to be courageous, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> and and uh, that's a very interesting point, isn't it? 
yeah, Sorry. the bottom line is still there, right? Yeah, yeah. And I look at, if I go look at the 18th, 19th and 20th century, they were really extraction centuries. It was resource extraction, labour extraction. I've got a feeling the 21st century is turning into an addition century and people are asking, well, how do I add? And a model that we've, we've been discussing in some other spotlights is the idea of a botanical garden. If everybody who went to the botanical garden took a cutting off the plants in the botanical garden, the extraction would be so great that the botanical garden would die. Mm. But the way the plant got there in the first case is through propagation. And there's a certain amount of propagation, which is appropriate, but for the garden to thrive, you can't actually just continually extract. And so you wind up with this interesting idea of saying, so how much is too much? And I think if we look at the, my reflection about Occupy Wall Street was it wasn't mine workers that were camping outside, outside Wall Street. They were degreed middle-class people who had, who'd bought into a deal, but didn't get their franchise in the deal. They were, they were working, but they weren't getting the leverage that they wanted. So there was, there was too much extraction happening and you know, that's a remuneration strategy scenario that needed to be fixed. In a few weeks' time, we've got COP26 happening in, in the UK, uh, the, the, the climate conference for those people who aren't into their acronyms and their numbers on their acronyms. At the end of that, we're all going to be really happy that we've got to the idea of net zero. But in December, the town hall series that we're doing is actually about beyond zero. Because net zero becomes compliance. Imagination and the future is actually about beyond zero and how do we go create those? So, again, that envelope that we we're talking about of the corporate social responsibility is going to be reset in, at the COP conference. And that parameter for the executive, for her to make a decision to say, I'm moving into the future, has now been pushed a bit further forward. Let's have some conversations which actually keep pushing that boundary to make it even safer for the executives who are making those decisions. That to me is one of the important discussion points. Industry needs to actually create the future safe space, not just lament what had been done by Dieter Rams in the 1970s. You know, that amazing work that Dieter Rams did, but that's not gonna take us into the future. What's gonna take us into the future is the work that you're doing at Frog about executive teams, enterprise-wide design, the conversations that we're having here in the Design Exec Club about where, where is that boundary? Because if people think that they're on the edge of a, pre a precipice, they'll feel that they're going to fall off. If we show them that there's a lot of land ahead of them, then they're going to march into that and, and actually realise they have to run to get to the edge because leaders are right at the edge there. So I think they're very interesting development stages, how do you know if you're taking people too far? You must, you must have felt that where you've got slightly ahead of some clients and other clients are saying, can you take us even further? Is it just a, a gut-sensing thing because you know the client? Well, you're not always, you're never going to be always right. 
Well, hang on, look at the t-shirt. It says it's never simple. I, I um, certainly we have had clients where uh, we started the conversation with them, we got them to a point of vision and then nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And with some of the clients, what we found is two years later, somebody comes back to us or gets that thinking piece and says, hey, how can I take this forward? Things have changed in the organization. What can I take forward? Um, I would say that perhaps the places that we trip up the most is when we focus too far on the big idea and the, the concepts or solutions that we're proposing are too far of a step for any, for any like anything tangible to show. But when we are more successful, we can step back to say, here's the big idea, here's the big concepts that get us there, and here's the first two steps. And look, we've prototyped it, we've visualized it, we've um, done a Kickstarter with it and 100,000 people love it um, to move the needle, the first step forward. And again, that is the kind of step coming up with that first step, getting it on Kickstarter, getting people excited and having that tangible demonstration of big goal, big steps, first little step, achievable and valuable that gives people that sense that there is that runway or the edge of the cliff is is further out. And and What's interesting there is that, you know, there's all sorts of terminology that's given, you know, there's quick wins, there's waypoints, but people need to have affirmation that they're not just going off on a tangent. And that, that's what you're doing by those early stages is you're giving them there's achievement, there is effort, goal, achievement, effort, goal, achievement, effort, goal, achievement. And it's within a bigger, it's within a bigger story. So just the little step is an isolated, you know, not so important step. But when it's in the bigger context, that's what helps people see that there is something they can go towards. And and so there's going to be different sorts of minds inside the organization. Some people who are very give me short sprints and there's other people who are very longitudinal thinkers. There's a balance to get the influence with, with both of those groups, isn't there? Because uh, again, it's a harmony thing. I often think about triangle players in orchestras that must be the most patient people around. Whereas the violinists, uh, I've got to go, I've got to play everything. And the innovation teams are there likewise. That's like they've got these violinists who have to be in part of every bar has to have a bit of violin or it's not an orchestra. And then you've got these patient people going, ding, I just did my little thing. And, it, and they're quite happy because I understand without that little thing that they did at that part of the project, it wouldn't be complete. But so, it was a really bad conductor who just gave props to the violinists and never recognised the the triangle player, right? Yeah. And perhaps part of our role is to, when we think of that element of design that is about facilitation and listening and getting different uh, viewpoints engaged, part of it is also to your metaphor, thinking about all the parts of the orchestra and how they play together to create the symphony. 
Well, and, and actually, I have a really, I'm trying to think of the podcast because I'd love to put a link into it. I'll, I'll, I'll get there, I'm sure. But it was talking about if scientists went and analysed a piece of music, what they do is they'd look at the notes and the timing. And we all know it's actually not the notes and the timing. It's actually, it's the mildly off the note at the right point based on where the previous note was and the timing, that's what creates something magnificent. When Yo-Yo Ma gets, uh, gets on the cello and plays, it is not the notes and the timing, it is the Yo-Yo Ma-ness that's in there. And so we've got to go look at that totality that's in, and it takes all those members of the team. It takes the triangle player, it takes the conductor, it takes the, um, uh, the violin player. Everybody has to be actually working in concert there. That's a very difficult thing to go do in enterprises because people have careers and imagination and maternity leave and parent leave and bereavement leave and there's conferences. How do you build that culture? Or is it that you basically set a standard and then you hope that the rest of the chaotic organisation that is in enterprises, that they work out how to manage that, but you've helped to set a standard... Right. When we're thinking about designing change within an organization, we're never thinking, it's never going to my mind, to my experience, be just one thing that you do that makes it reflect across the whole organization. We think about the alignment of kind of vision and purpose, the talent, how is, if we have a great vision and purpose that makes sense, how does that, how does that reflect out to the talent, the people in the company? And then are they supported by the processes and tools that they need to um, realize that vision? And then is that process supported by you know, tools? Sometimes that's technology, it could be lots of different things that enable them to deliver that. And then even as we think about the structure of the organization, how decisions are made, um, where power is placed, uh, does that reflect the purpose? And together, it's all of those things that actually show up in what a company does in the world and the products and services that they create. So if you're trying to make change for how your company shows up in the world and you're just focused on the mission statement or you're just focused on the design team or the corporate social responsibility office, or you're like Slack is going to make us a better company. You're probably missing opportunities to look at the orchestration around it. But I would say the place that all of us can truly have impact and we can guarantee impact is in how we show up and the questions that we ask. That is the only thing that we can personally control with reliability. So it starts, it starts individually, designers can yeah. change. And, and what's interesting there is that you've then got agency. You, you've now got the opportunity, it's what you do that will make a difference. And as we know, we can only change the future. Turi, I'm gonna go and actually begin to do a wrap up here. But before we go, there's two things I always wanna do with people I'm in the spotlight with. One is I'm gonna ask you who's inspiring you. But before then, is there anything that we needed to cover that we haven't covered? 
There's nothing. Isn't that awesome? Because sometimes there's uh, some people that's like, oh, I've got to go and say this. This idea came up. I've got to get it. So that's good. But we haven't got that incompleteness of getting those ideas across. But who's inspiring you or what's inspiring you? Well, I think um, in the topic that we've been discussing today, I'm really enjoying the work of my, my colleague, Cara Pecknold. Uh, she's a frog from our Munich studio, and she's been taking the lead on asking these questions about how do we design for people and planet. Um, she's really been kind of championing, champ she's been a champion <laughs> for that idea um, for for several years within the company. And she's really been doing some interesting thinking about what does it mean uh, to not only bring that through product and service design, but also to the mindset and the way an organization shows up in the world. So I would encourage all of you to, you know, look up Kara Pecknold uh, and see what she's up to. Or Mark, I would encourage you to have a conversation with her. I think you all would enjoy each other. Well, look, I'm going to go put Kara on the list there um, uh, that we go and get a spotlight with her because it's the people who, are, who have spent time to develop models and methods who it's been gestating for quite a period of time and now they're delivering it. They're the spot. That's where the spotlight needs to go to say, here's some awesome knowledge over here. You should get access to it. Terry, I've had a wonderful time going and actually stumbling around how we get to a better future. How does enterprise design work? How do we actually consider the ask, the organization, and working out how humans can change things? Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Mark. It's always great to speak with you.